Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, beginning at verse 16. That's Mark 15, beginning at verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they mixed and offered to him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So! You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. We've been journeying very slowly and rightly and appropriately so through the Gospel of Mark. And as I've just prayed this morning, we get to holy ground. We get to uh, the moment that the Gospel of Mark has been building up to, which is the cross of Christ. There's a a theme that runs like a river through the verses, verse 16 to 32, that I've just read to you, that is very, very deeply moving. It's upsetting, it's concerning, and it's the mocking, the jeering of Jesus Christ. It runs all the way through. Look at uh, this passage with me, please. Eyes down, verses 16 to verse 20. It's the turn of the soldiers. They're making fun of him. They're spitting in his face. They're jeering at him. Look down to verse 24. Jesus is stripped. What made crucifixion so horrible, we'll get to this very shortly, is it was the worst of all deaths because every person that was crucified was stripped of their dignity, of their humanity. He was stripped naked. He was crucified naked. Look at verse 27. There's this uh, ironic statement in sentence 27. 
put over Jesus as he's dying on the cross. The king of the Jews. It's a statement you put on someone's throne, not on a cross. Look at verse 29 and verse 30. Now it's the turn, not of the soldiers, but it's the passers-by. What are they doing? They're insulting and mocking Jesus with their words. And then look at the end of sentence 32. Even the thieves on the cross, to the left and to the right of Jesus, are making fun of him. And they are insulting him. In other words, Jesus Christ did not just get, just if that's the appropriate word, killed on the cross. He also got shamed. He was also humiliated. And it's very, very important for us to see that so that we understand the depth of what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross. Because when we see that, that he was not just mocked and jeered and insulted and brutalised, if you are the Son of God, prophesy as they punched him in the face. It shows us something deeply troubling about our own hearts and my heart. What do I mean? Look, we see the depths of our hearts as we look at the mocking. We see the depth of love in the heart of Christ. And when we see that, we can see how to live like Christ. So our hearts can be changed to be more like him. We need to see the pain that Jesus went through as he was humiliated and mocked. Here's the first thing we see. It shows us something deeply moving about the mocking nature in my heart and the capacity and propensity to do that in your heart too. Two things to think about and to see. Our hearts have this capacity to mock the person of Jesus Christ and God our Father because we hate the claims of Jesus. What do I mean? We, we just hate the claims that Jesus makes. That's why we want to mock him. What is Jesus being mocked for in these verses? Why is Jesus being made fun of? Why is he being scorned and jeered at? Well, here's what it's not. When Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews chapter 5, 6 and into 7 as well, when he spoke the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel as well, was Jesus mocked or jeered at because he was a great teacher? No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. Was he uh, made fun at because of his authority as he spoke in the synagogues? No, he wasn't. <laughs> Was he made fun at as he stilled the storm? And as, as Chris uh, said, helpfully, as he drove out demons, as he made someone who had the terrible life of eternal bleeding, this, this desperately needy lady, as he restored her to full health, did people laugh at him or jeer at him or mock him? No, he wasn't. They're jeering because of the huge claims that he made as Lord and King and Christ. He's saviour of the world. He's the king of the Jews. Are you who you claim to be? And it's that huge claim of authority that people find so offensive and so unpalatable. Verse 29. Here's something that they hated from Mark chapter 13. You say, you can just imagine the hatred as their faces are contorted, looking at the king of the Jews. You said that you were going to take down this temple and rebuild it in three days. Look at you now. How's that going for you, Jesus? It's these incredible claims that Jesus is king, saviour, 
ruler of the world. It's those things that make people so offensive and so hardened to the person of Jesus. And here's the thing. It's not just those people in those days around the cross of Christ. I can do that too and so can you. It's easy and understandable and uh, we can keep it at arm's length if Jesus is just a great teacher. He's just a divine. He's just a moral person. What really causes us to get hostile to Jesus is when we see the magnitude of his claims. I mean, what was it? What, what is it? You can go on YouTube, you can read whatever periodical you choose, you can go to the radio stations. And what is it that when a historian talks about Mussolini, when they talk about Mother Teresa, when they talk about Gandhi, when they talk about other religious leaders, they do it respectfully. But when it comes to Jesus, the tone changes and the temperature increases. You Google Stephen Fry, remarkable mind, great intellect, super character. But when he comes to talking about the person of Jesus, he is so hostile. And what is it about the person of Jesus that makes the temperature increase and the tone get hard and faces contorted? Why do people despise Jesus? Why do they do that? And why do I do that unless Jesus works in my heart? Because I think Jesus has the magnitude of claims that no one else has. There's something about his authenticity. There's something about the words that he spoke and the claims that he made that drive us to an all or nothing conclusion. There's no middle road. There's no middle ground with Jesus. And it's that that we find so hostile. And therefore we want to undermine his claims. Well, you can't trust the Bible. Don't follow Jesus, just follow him partially. No, you need to follow him wholly or you don't follow him at all. I'm not a teacher who just points to a way. I am the teacher who points to the only way. I am the way, I am the only way, and I am the truth and the only truth, and only life can be found through me. I'm the saviour of the world. And therefore, it's all or nothing with Jesus. And it's that that we find so offensive. We want to keep our options open. A few weeks ago, I put up the, the phrase, we have a fear of missing out, so we want Jesus' hand. And it's Jesus' order, it's Jesus' nothing. And we find that so difficult. There's a man called Augustine. And he tells a story in later life of uh, the pears. Now, I don't know if uh, I took my daughter, I take her for, to show her a great time, the youngest one, not the oldest one, to Audi every Tuesday morning. And it's fruit and veg that you need to make your choices of. I choose whatever's got a red sticker on it, you know me. Um, but uh, we went past the apples, we saw the lemons, and then she said, what's that? And it was a pear, so we need to get some pears so she can enjoy it and, 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 and taste them. There's a man called Augustine, and uh, in later life, he looked back at an episode in his early life where he stole some pears. And he says in a book called Confessions, where he's understanding his heart, and understanding our hearts too. Why as a younger man did I jump over the fence and steal the pears? Was it because I was hungry? No, I wasn't hungry. Was it because uh, I like pears? No, I didn't like pears. So why did I steal the pears as a younger man? Because someone told me I couldn't do it. That's why I stole the pears. No one tells me what to do. It's true for Augustine, it's true for me. It's true for you too. A 
red rag to a bull. What is it? Put a 20 mile hour zone by a school. And it's just an opportunity to think, right, I'm going to cycle over 20, I'm going to drive over 20. No one tells me what to do. I didn't like the pears, I wasn't hungry. No one tells me what to do. Keep off the grass. That's for other people. No one likes to be told what to do. And we have clenched teeth when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. And so the soldiers took every opportunity to punch him in the face. If you're king of the Jews, save yourself. People walking by, people to the left and to the right, even with their dying breath, are being hostile to Jesus because we hate his claims. But also we hate the weakness of his ways. It's not just the person of Jesus who he claims to be that we hate. We hate the way he operates. Jesus came humbly. He came in weakness. He came in meekness. Notice what they're saying as Jesus is on the cross. Look down to verse 31. You could not be the king because we know how kings work. They work with might and they work with strength. If you were the king, then stop me doing this to you as they struck him in the mouth. If you were the king, they wouldn't be crucifying you. If you were the king, this would not be happening in my life. Let's get more personal and up to date. You can't be the saviour, you can't be the king, because kings and saviours don't die in vulnerability. They don't die on a cruel cross. When anything weak comes into my life and your life, when suffering comes into your life, we tend to get very hard and very angry very quickly. And we tend to mock God. And the only way to mock God is when you are in a position of superiority and pride rather than humility. We tend to mock the idea that God is a God of love when hard things come into my life and your life too. Because we think we know best. God is not doing what he ought to be doing. If he was there, if he did care, this would not be my experience right now. You say you're the king. You say you're the saviour. Verse 31 and into verse 32. This is not how saviours and kings operate. Well, it might be how other kings don't operate, but this is how the saviour and the king of the world operates. And his way is the way of meekness. And his way is the way of weakness. You can't be saving the world by dying on a cross. But he was, claims the Bible. And the danger is if you think God never operates in difficulty, he never operates through suffering, is that you meet or miss the greatest act of humility and strength the world has ever seen. Strength in weakness. Strength through service. Don't miss the greatest act of strength and leadership in history by seeing that Jesus Christ is showing his greatness through self-control. His power and love displayed through a blood-soaked brow and holes that the nails made through his feet and wrists. When bad stuff happens in my life, God could not be working. Yes, he can. Often he works most profoundly, as we saw in the story of Joseph, in his hiddenness. 
The mockery of Jesus shows our hostility to the greatest claims and our blindness to the weakness of his ways because it shows us some pretty ugly junk and stuff and sludge in my heart. We don't want to bow to his claims. We certainly don't like how he works. But look, that's, that's the bad news. Here's the great news, that the mocking of Jesus, the indifference of the people around him, also show us his heart for us. Look at verse 32. It's not all about us, this passage. Look at the humiliation and the shame that Jesus went through. Verse 32. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Christ, if you are the King of Israel, why don't you come down from the cross? We know how heroes work, and heroes don't die until the end of the film. Other people die. There's always a way out. It's like the Lone Ranger. They always get close to the cliff in the black and white film, and then next week they're somehow 30 feet back and they ride off to safety. Here's the problem. We don't realise how great Jesus Christ really is. Just pause to think who's on the cross. This is the almighty creator of the whole universe. He's so infinitely great that he expressed his greatness and his heroism by staying on the cross. His love is displayed by him staying on the cross, not by coming down from it. The greatest act of self-control in all of history as Jesus remained. The all-powerful God, the incomparable one, the unique one, the one who sustains our life, and breath, and the whole world, not a star falls from its ordained place, or a sparrow falls to the ground, or a hair comes out of my increasingly thinning hairline, without a word of authority and power and command from the person of Jesus Christ. And yet he did not flinch as the punches were thrown. He did not turn back as the nails were driven in. He took it all. He took it all out of love. Roman society was based on shame and honour. If you had a great reputation, it was linked to your name. So if you had a, a great uh, household, your name and reputation would increase. But of course, death is there for all of us, and, and your name would live on only if you had a huge reputation and, and you made something of yourself. You became a somebody rather than a nobody. That's how your name and reputation went on into the afterlife and, and, and when you died. And that's why the cross was such a, a horrific or a, a brilliant means of torture and death. Because it wasn't just about you dying. Jesus did not just die. He was humiliated. He was erased from history. That was what the Romans were attempting to do. Criminals would die a noble death in the Colosseum. You've seen Gladiator, that kind of stuff. If they could fight, they could get some honour. What you do in life echoes in eternity, apparently. But the cross was the most unimaginable death. The Romans were so ashamed of it, they sought to erase it from history, but it was such an effective way of killing people that they used it with thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. Tom Holland, in his book Dominion, says in a superb introduction, it's a death so foul that they wanted to attribute it to the Greeks and the Syrians and the Persians and to other people. But it was the Romans who invented it. 
It was a death so foul that people were tainted even by looking at it. So they wanted to put their eyes away from viewing a crucifixion. Because crucifixion was about erasing the whole person. It was killing your name. It was killing your dignity. It was making you a laughing stock. So Jesus was being shamed in this honour-shame culture as he was killed. And he took it willingly. That's a remarkable thing. I mean, Jesus had to make a choice. It's him or it's us. The eternal shame that we deserve, Jesus took. He was our substitute. Think about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a super psalm, as they all are. So are the other 149. But Psalm 2 is a super psalm that speaks into the condition of our heart. We think in our arrogance that we would do a better job at ruling the world than God, who made it. And so God says, okay. And God laughs, mocking us. We deserve to be mocked in our hubris, in our arrogance, in our pride. But Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 55, 53, excuse me. When the servant of the Lord comes, he will be despised and rejected. We will esteem him not. We will not honour him. It says in Isaiah 50, verse 6, he will not turn away from the mocking and the spitting. He had to make a decision, himself or us. And he chose us. He took on our shame so that his reputation was destroyed so that we can receive his name and be adopted into his family because his name was erased from all of history. And so Jesus looks on us in Christ and loves us. We have the applause not of the Colosseum. We have the applause of God, the smile of God, the affection of God because of what Jesus Christ did for us if we stand in his strength. And when you see the shame that he went through for the glory of God and for our great good, eternal good, we appreciate just a bit more about the power of the cross. And it's so powerful, it can still change our hearts today, which is our third point. The mocking can change our hearts so that they can become a little bit more like Jesus' heart for other people. How so? I struggle to deal with suffering. Perhaps you do too. When suffering comes into our life, as we've said before, it, it can make us hard, it can make us cynical, it can make us bitter and angry. It we can be someone who mocks God in the 21st century. If you're really there and if you care and if you're good, then take this out of my life, please. I don't need this anymore. It just makes us harder because we don't like the weakness of his ways. Paul has something to say about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says weakness is the way that God still works today. There was something that God gave Paul in his experience in his life. It was described as a thorn might have been a sight loss, it was diminishing, so that he was partially sighted. It might have been a spiritual ailment, it might have been something else that was physical. We're not sure. But in 2 Corinthians 12, it says this, There was given me a thorn in my flesh to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power 
is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I delight in my weakness, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The thorn. How did Paul persevere? How did he keep going when he was faced with suffering? How come it didn't make him hard or bitter? How come he kept going in patience and courageousness and even, even joy? The Apostle Paul experienced because he remembered Jesus' thorns. His thorn, whatever it was, pointed to Jesus' thorns, to the ultimate thorns that Jesus Christ wore in this crown of thorns around his head. Here is Paul, I'm sure he said, please take it away from me, Lord. Just as Jesus Christ on the cross said, Lord, please take it away, but not my will. He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is there any other way? Take this cup away, but not my will, but yours, he said. My power is made perfect in weakness. And when Paul, I'm sure he connected the dots, this thorn in his experience to the ultimate thorns of Christ, how can I complain? How can I be bitter? How can I be despondent when people malign me, when they do me harm, when they damage my reputation? Because Jesus Christ, <laughs> Jesus Christ showed me that weakness is the way. And when I see that, then I can suffer for him. How about when people mock me, when people betray me? Well, I need to look to him who was betrayed, who was mocked, and yet did not turn his back. When you face your reputation going through the mill, through the trash, when your name is maligned, when you think you don't have a name, remember what Jesus Christ achieved for you at the cross. He was erased so that we might know his joy. He had his name removed so that we might be called sons and daughters of the king. He had his reputation destroyed so that we might receive in him not just all our hopes and dreams, but the very righteousness of God. And so we can walk in his footsteps, we can serve other people, we can persevere through difficulty and hardship and suffering because we know that God cares for us, because we know that Jesus Christ has wounds for us. So let the mocking of Jesus expose the sludge in your heart. Let the mocking of Jesus expose his heart that he has for the glory of his Father, not to move away from you, but to move towards you and to remain on the cross so that he might rescue you. And when you see that, and as we gather around the table, may the Holy Spirit take that afresh and make our hearts a little bit more like the hearts of his Son.